Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Second Chronicles chapter 14, beginning in the first verse. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his stead. In his days the land was quiet ten years. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places, and brake down the images, and cut down the groves, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and to do the law and the commandment. Also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places, and the images, and the kingdom was quiet before him. Here's an important key in interpreting and understanding your Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, it's important to remember that after Solomon's 40-year reign on the throne of Israel, the nation divided. There was civil war. Jeroboam and Rehoboam both wanted access to the throne and the nation divided between the north and the south. It sounds much like American history, does it not, back in the 19th century. And the northern kingdom became its own little nation called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And interestingly, each of these kingdoms had their own kings. And interestingly, the southern kingdom outdistanced the northern kingdom by 135 years or so. That is, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians before the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. And one reason that the southern kingdom outlived the northern is because they enjoyed periodic episodes of reformation and covenant renewal under the influence of several godly kings. The northern kingdom, over its 250-year period, did not have a single godly king. Every one of the kings in the north were told did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The leaders of the people led them astray. Every single one walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Ahab was one of those kings in the north. You've heard of wicked king Ahab. But in contrast to the northern kingdom, which never had a single godly king, the southern kingdom, of its 16 kings, at least eight of them were told, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. They were godly kings. And I suggest that the example of these godly leaders, together with the religious reforms that they implemented, calling the nation to repentance, had a preserving effect upon the nation. Like salt slows down the process of decay in meat, so the nation lasted longer because of the influence of godly leaders, men who sought to direct them in a godly way. And the principle that we can learn from this is that leadership, whether good or evil, exercises a sort of trickle-down effect on the people who are being led. There are two verses in Proverbs that are very interesting in terms of how leadership affects the nation. Here are two principles. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
And the other verse is in Proverbs 29, verse 2, which says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. That's certainly true, isn't it? When you have a righteous leader, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people of God mourn. And King Asa, as we read, was one of these godly kings who did, as verse 2 says, that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. I've been impressed for some years with this expression in both the Old and the New Testament, in the eyes of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord. And if you and I could learn to live our lives as if God is watching, because he is, then that would have an impact upon our conduct and behavior, wouldn't it? God sees you. He sees you at all times and places and circumstances. That should be both a sobering and a comforting thought to us this morning. So King Asa did that which was right and good in the sight of the Lord. So I want us this morning to look at Asa as a person. Let's consider his godly character. What was it that made him such a good and godly leader? And then we want to look at the godly influence of Asa's reign on the nation of Judah. And then we'll make application of this entire lesson to us today, to where you and I live today. First of all, let's look at Asa personally as a man of godly character. And I suggest that we learn from the biographical narrative, the material that's given to us here in Chronicles and in Kings. By the way, you'll see a parallel passage to this one in Chronicles in 1 Kings 15. One reason that he was such an influential leader for good in the history of the nation of Judah was because the reforms that he implemented started in his own heart. If you'll look with me at the first Kings passage, verse chapter 15, verse 14 says this, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. When this word perfect is used in the Bible to refer to men like it does to Job in Job 1.1 and here to Asa, it speaks of that which is utterly sincere. It has integrity. It's mature, spiritually mature. Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. Now you might hear that, and if you know anything about Asa and his latter years, you see he made some mistakes. That happens sometimes in our lives. You know, we... Of course, each one of us would say this morning that uh, I stumble and falter on a daily basis. But if you look at our lives as a whole, I think you could probably see if the general direction is in terms of serving the Lord and what is right and what is pleasing to God, or on the other hand, what is worldly and carnal and self-centered, you know, the general direction. That's what we're talking about. Generally speaking, in Asa's life, even though he had moments of faltering and stumbling and failings, yet the general consensus of his life was that his heart was perfect toward the Lord all his days. Like David. You know that David's called a man after God's own heart. Somebody says, Brother Goins, how could David be a man after God's own heart when he sinned so heinously with Bathsheba. How could David be pleasing to God? Well, generally speaking, the overarching editorial of his life, God's summary of his life as a whole is that he was a man whose heart beat in unison with the heart of God. He was a man after God's own heart. The same is true of King Asa. Asa's heart 
was perfect. Now may I say the most important part of your anatomy and mine is our heart. And I'm not talking about that muscle that pumps blood throughout your body for 70, 80, or 90 years. But I'm talking, dear friends, about uh, that inward man, your spirit. I'm talking about the part of you that God touches when you're born again. And He makes it tender to His influence. I'm talking about the real you behind and beneath the surface. You know, we all put on a public face. But you know, character is more important than appearance. Who you are on the inside is more important than what people think of you or how you might appear to them on the outside. And Asa's heart. May I say here's the first great qualification of a good leader, whether we're talking about a leader over a nation, a king or a president or a prime minister, or whether we're talking about a leader in a church, an office holder or bearer in a church, or in the home, a leader in the home or at work, in a position of influence and authority and superintendence, whatever category we're discussing, may I say leadership starts in the heart. Asa's primary concern in life was not his portfolio, his reputation. His primary concern was, is my heart right before God? So Asa was a man of godly character. And I suggest that the thing that comes out most clearly in his life is that Asa was a God seeker. Now, if you were to ask me, Brother Mike, what is the single most outstanding characteristic in the life of King Asa? I would say he was a man who was a seeker after God. If you were to put an epitaph on his gravestone, it would say, Godly King Asa, the God seeker. For that is exactly what he was. If you look at the narrative here in Second Chronicles, over and over again it says he sought the Lord, he encouraged the people to seek God, he encouraged himself to seek the Lord. The idea that is repeated over and again is that Asa was primarily concerned with seeking the face of God. For instance, look at chapter 14, verse 4, where we read, just a moment ago, Asa commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers. Verse 7, he said to the people, let us build cities and make walls and towers and bars about them while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, he repeats, and he hath given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Chapter 15, verse 12 and the people entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. You see, under Asa's influence and leadership, he himself was a God seeker. And the people that he led became seekers of the Lord. And verse 15 says, And all Judah rejoiced at the covenant, at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought the Lord with their whole desire. So seeking the Lord is the dominant characteristic of his life. And may I say that the Bible puts a premium on the importance of seeking the Lord in our lives. What are you seeking today? Somebody says, I'm seeking wealth. That's what I'm running after. You know, to seek means to search for, to pursue. It speaks of your ambition in life. What are you searching for? What is your goal? For what objective are we living? 
That's a good question to ask ourselves. Some people are seeking wealth. Others are seeking fame. Others are seeking pleasure and personal ease. But may I say the child of God is called upon to seek the Lord. In fact, that's the reason we were made. Acts chapter 17 verse 27 says that God hath made of one blood all nations of men that men should seek the Lord. Why are we here? What is the purpose of your existence? Why am I here? And the answer to that is that I am here not for myself, but I'm here to make the pursuit of God my great ambition in life. My life goal is to seek the Lord. That's why we're all here. And somebody says, well, Brother Mike, aren't, there aren't many people doing that this morning. That's the reason our planet is in such a bad way. That's why we're in such trouble. Because we're not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. You were created for the purpose of pursuing God. Seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord's glory. Seeking the Lord's fellowship. Seeking the Lord's kingdom and the expansion of His work in the earth. You and I were made to serve Him. That's why we were made. But most people are serving themselves, aren't they? They're living for their personal passions and pleasures. So Asa was a God seeker. And the priority of seeking God cannot be overstated. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 4 says. And if you're like me, we would all have to say that we lack consistency. That is, we serve the Lord by fits and starts like a sputtering car. I mean, we're on again, off again consistency that's something i aspire to but i have not yet attained to now i think i see a little progress and growth and we should all grow in that area but you see here's what happens god said to the children of israel in deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 29 that if you disobey me then i will scatter you among the nations we know that did happen to the nation of israel and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen whither the Lord shall lead you. And there you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which can neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Watch this. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, if you will change your focus and repent and turn back to God, thou shalt find him. Now that is a tremendously comforting promise. Even after you failed, if you will repent and turn and seek the Lord, then you will find him. Isn't it wonderful to know that there is such an option as repentance in our lives? Repentance is not a hard doctrine. It is a joyful, glorious note on the gospel scale. It's a happy theme to think that God does not operate on the principle, one strike and you're out. I'm so glad we have a gospel for sinners. Because which of us have been consistent and perfect from the get-go up to this present moment? I haven't. But my friends, God says that even though you've been chastened and you've wandered from the way of righteousness, if you will turn and seek the Lord your God, then thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Seeking the Lord should be the priority in our lives. Isaiah 55 verse 6 is a verse probably that many of you have heard before. And it's so wonderful. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he's near. Yes, my friends, the idea is that if you continue to turn a blind eye 
and a deaf ear to God's overtures to seek Him, to turn and repent, then eventually you may be left to do it on your own. God is long-suffering, but that doesn't mean that His justice will sleep forever in our life. So seek the Lord while you have the opportunity. And of course, we know that's not an appeal to the dead sinner, for the dead sinner's not seeking anything. He's spiritually dead. And the deceased don't have a desire to search for anything. That's an invitation or an injunction to the child of grace. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. The idea is that we need to strike while the iron is hot and redeem the time and take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us and not abuse His goodness and His long-suffering and His forbearance, but respond to the gospel call. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. My friends, that's my message to you. Seek the Lord while you have the opportunity. You say, well, I'm waiting until I retire to start serving God. Your body may be broken down in your mind, not even able to maintain a train of thought when you reach a certain point in life. Don't wait. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Seek Him while He may be found. Make God the priority in your life. Seeking God should be the believer's priority. In fact, this is the way of wisdom. Listen to this verse from Proverbs 28, verse 5. They that forsake the law praise the wicked. Do you hear anybody in popular culture today bragging on, agreeing with, celebrating ideas and policies that are completely immoral? Well, this verse says, they that forsake God's law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. That is, they stand against it. They fight against it. They contend with the wicked. Watch this. Evil men understand not judgment. They just can't process why you think the way that you do. It's an enigma to them. But they that seek the Lord understand all things. Now my friends, if you're a God seeker today, then you have a biblical worldview. You have wisdom. You can see the big picture. Other people who are not in touch with God and His Word and who don't make pleasing Him the priority in their lives, they are perplexed that you and I would even believe the things that we believe. Do you know why we see things the way that we do and pursue the goals that we do? It's because God is first in our lives. And that should be the case in the life of every child of grace. So Asa was a man of godly character. And you might ask this morning, Brother Mike, tell me in real life terms what it means to seek the Lord. And I would say seeking the Lord is a euphemism for pursuing fellowship with God in your personal walk. In the 27th Psalm and the fourth verse, the psalmist says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. Now, if you could ask for one blessing from God, what would it be? You say, I couldn't just ask for one blessing, Brother Mike. I want a million things. Well, it's important to make up your mind on one thing in life and to stick with it. And the psalmist uh, sets the pace for what that looks like when he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. You've heard somebody say, if you could make one wish, you know, if you had a genie in a bottle and you could make one wish, what would it be? And somebody says, I'd wish for 100 more wishes. <laughs> but the psalmist says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. In other words, I'm in hot pursuit of this one thing. This is my goal in life, and here's what it is. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You say, Brother Mike, that sounds pretty unspectacular. I mean, I was thinking he would say to be the, uh, a multimillionaire or to uh, be world famous or to live in an exotic place in a 20-room mansion. I was thinking that's what he would say. He says, no, the one thing I want in my life is to be in close fellowship with God, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. You say, not me. I want to behold Niagara Falls. I want to see the great pyramids of Egypt. I want to see the Roman Colosseum. I want to see the Grand Canyon. Brother Mike, I want to see a lot of things. The psalmist says, I just want to see one thing. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. And I want to tell you, if you've ever seen the beauty of Christ, everything else pales into insignificance in the light of his wonderful face. That's what the hymn writer said in that popular song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. My beloved, have you ever seen Jesus? Have you ever seen the lovely face of your Savior? If you've seen yourself to be a poor sinner and then you've seen the beauty of his grace, I want to tell you there is no sight more breathtaking and mesmerizing than the sight of beholding his beauty forever. The psalmist says one thing I want in my life. This may not meet with the ambitions of the rich and the famous, but I'll tell you every little child of grace understands something of what he's saying. The one desire of my life is to live in the service of my Lord, looking upon the glorious face of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, beholding the beauty of the Lord and inquiring in his temple. And the eighth verse of that psalm says, when the Lord said, seek ye my face, my heart responded to him saying, thy face, Lord, will I seek. My friends, what does it mean to seek God? It means to pursue fellowship with him as your life priority. It also means to rely and depend on the Lord, to trust in him, to look to him in faith for your every need. Here's a verse in the 31st chapter of Isaiah, verse 1, that says, Woe unto them. Now, anytime you read that word woe in the Bible, understand that a judgment is being pronounced. God says woe. That's the opposite of blessed. You know, the Beatitudes, blessed are. The opposite of this benediction is this malediction. This oracle of weal, uh, the benediction, is countered now by this oracle of woe. It's a curse, a divine curse. Woe unto them, says God, that go down to Egypt for help. Now, God's children that came out of Egypt, the Israelites, were warned against ever returning to Egypt. And the Lord says here that anyone who goes down to Egypt for help, that is, that seeks alliance with the foreign government of Egypt. You see, Egypt is a type of the world throughout the Bible. And when he tells his people, don't go to the world for your counsel, for your assistance, for your help, God says it's this serious. Woe unto them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. And we're talking this morning about Asa, who was a seeker after God. And God says that in contrast to seeking the Lord, some of my children seek the world. They go down to Egypt for help. And God says they are under a curse. 
In other words, they're looking to the world and trusting in men for their needs instead of looking to the Lord and relying upon Him. And I want to add a disclaimer to this this morning. A doctrinal point is very important at this point. Only the person who has been born again seeks the Lord. You understand, don't you, that the natural man is not a God seeker. Romans chapter 3 tells us in this litany of characteristics of our natural state, there is none that understandeth, and there is none that seeketh after God. Now there has been a popular movement in Christian circles in the past 10 or 20 years called the seeker-sensitive movement. Many churches have begun to identify themselves as seeker-sensitive churches. That is, and the idea is that everybody is seeking God. They said everybody is seeking after God and we're seeking the seekers and we want to help them find the God that they're seeking because you see their lives are so empty. Now, I understand what they're saying, but I disagree theologically with the idea that everybody is seeking God because the Bible tells us that man by nature seeketh not after God. There is none that seeketh after God. In fact, Psalm 14 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that would seek Him. And the response was, They are together become unprofitable. They're all gone astray. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's really the passage Paul is quoting in Romans 3, by the way. So does man by nature seek God? You say, well, people are wanting something to fill the void in their hearts. And I think the answer to this dilemma was probably put best by Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period. This theologian and Christian philosopher said that people say that everybody is seeking God. And he said that's not true. He says people are seeking the benefits that only God can give, but they're rejecting the God who can give them. You see, by nature, everybody wants peace. Everybody wants joy and happiness. Everyone wants comfort and satisfaction and an eternal or an everlasting future. Everybody wants that, but they don't want the God who is the only one who can give them those things. So they seek it in other places. They seek it in the pill cabinet or in the bottle or in diversions or recreations or personal indulgence of the passions of the flesh. They're seeking it in other people. God says, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and refuse to seek the Lord. That's man's condition by nature, my beloved. Therefore, if you find somebody who's a God seeker, I want to tell you that person gives evidence of grace. Colossians 3.1 says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Notice how a person must first be resurrected with Jesus. And that's speaking, I believe, of the work of grace in the heart in regeneration when God raises a dead sinner into new life in Jesus Christ in his inward man. If you then be risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Indeed, my beloved, Acts 17, 27, again, the passage I referenced just a moment ago says that men were made that they should seek the Lord. And then he adds this interpretive expression, if happily they might feel after him. Who will seek God? Only those whose hearts have been tendered and made to feel after God. 
So what does it mean in real life terms to seek the Lord? How do we seek the Lord? We seek Him through Scripture. Isaiah 8 verse 19 says, Seek not to the wizards that peep, nor to the soothsayer or the magician, that is the lady with the crystal ball, the palm reader. He says, don't go to her for your advice. This is not the place for wisdom. This is not the place to get counsel. But he says, to the law and to the testimony. If a people speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. My beloved, we seek God by seeking His word. We seek God through prayer. Hosea 10.12 says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Now here's a sowing and reaping principle. If you sow seeds of righteousness, if you do what's right, you'll reap the blessings of God's mercy. He says, break up your fallow ground. Is there any fallow land in your life? You know, a farmer that plows only in the middle and never gets close to the fence line. You know, that fence line lies fallow, undeveloped, uncultivated. And my beloved, in each of our lives, perhaps there's an area that we've not been plowing. It may be in your Bible reading habits. You haven't been reading like you should. Maybe in your prayer life. You've been thinking, I need to pray. Or maybe you've interpreted, let's pray for so-and-so as let's worry about so-and-so. We didn't say let's worry. We don't have a worry list. Prayer is not the same as just worrying about something. It's an actual activity of talking to God. Taking that need, verbalizing it, putting your heart into it, and asking for His help. My friends, maybe your prayer life needs to be broken up. It's fallow ground. Maybe it's in terms of reaching out and living for others ministering to others. But he says, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord until the Lord come and rain righteousness upon us. My, that would be a good motto to put on your bathroom mirror each day, wouldn't it? What time is it? I'll tell you what time it is. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to turn back to God. It's time, my friends, to put His will first. And Asa was a man whose heart was perfect before the Lord all his days because he was a God-seeker. We also seek the Lord by making His cause and kingdom the priority of our life. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things, all these things shall be added unto you. Do you believe that today? Do you really believe it? I do. I believe if you put the Lord first, He'll take care of you in your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, I have a lot of interests and concerns, but my friends, may I say, the pursuit that matters more to me than any other as my life ambition and focus is to seek the Lord, and I hope you can say the same. And that was Asa's priority. And real quickly, as the time has gotten away from us this morning, I want you to notice that the thing that made Asa's reign as king over the nation of Judah so effective was that he was a God-seeker, and that mindset trickled down or spilled over into the life of the nation. I want you to look at the godly influence of his reign on the nation of Judah in chapters 14 and 15 of Second Chronicles. The first 10 years, he initiated several moral reforms. You see this in chapter 14, the first seven verses. We read the passage to you this morning, and I think we could summarize the moral reforms that he inaugurated in the nation in at least three or four terms. What he's actually doing here is he started his reign by draining the swamp. He started his reign by pulling the plug. That's right. That's exactly what he did. Before we can turn back to God, we've got to get rid of 
the filth. You see, he came to power on the throne of Judah in the aftermath of a couple of idolatrous and ungodly kings. And what happens when the wicked bear rule? The people mourn, and it has a trickle-down effect, and the nation is in trouble because of their leadership. So King Asa comes to the throne, and he's a godly man. And the first thing he does is he has the courage to challenge the status quo and to say, we need to clean up the things that are going wrong. And the first thing he did is he cleansed the land of immorality. Listen to 1 Kings 15, 12. He took away the sodomites out of the land. In other words, the promiscuity and sexual immorality that was prevalent in culture, he cleaned it up. He took them out of the land. He expelled them. And I think we could probably agree that that was not a popular move, that people didn't appreciate it, and they thought, no, don't upset the apple cart. But he said, this has to be done if we're going to get back to God. And the second thing he did is he expunged idolatry from the land. Look at chapter 14, verse 5. He took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images. Now, do you know what the Bible means when it talks about the high places? These are places up in the mountains where they built dominant structures, altars, to the sun god Baal, to the moon god Chemosh, and Molech. And they practiced all sorts of pagan ritual sacrifices witchcraft, the mystery religions, the occult religions. These were practiced in groves or nature sanctuaries where they worshiped Mother Nature. They worshiped the sacred or divine feminine, the goddess cults, and they were engaged in all sorts of satanic rituals. These were Luciferian or satanic rituals. It was a vile kind of religion, even involving all sorts of immorality as religious ceremonies. And they had their idols. You know what he did? He took away from the cities of Judah the high places and the images, and the kingdom was quiet before him. That is, there was rest in the land. There was peace. That is, he makes these reforms. And then if you look at 1 Kings 15, 13, you'll learn that one of his reforms was he even deposed his own mother, or she may have been his grandmother, named Maacah. 1 Kings 15, 13 says, And also Maacah, his mother, even her, he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. He spared no quarter for those who were living immorally. He expelled them from the land. For the religious people, he tore down their idols and their sanctuaries of pagan ritual. And then even his own family, his own mother, or again, she was probably his grandmother, Maaka. He deposed her from being queen because she was having an idolatrous influence, a bad influence on the nation. She herself had made an idol in a grove, and Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. <laughs> That's pretty courageous, wouldn't you say? This fella is such a man of conviction that he's willing to challenge the status quo, even if it means upsetting people, because he's serious about getting back in touch with God. My beloved, I have great respect for such courage. I'll tell you what else he did. He rebuilt the military. Second Chronicles 14, verse 6, he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest, and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. I love that thought. Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities. These are fenced cities, that is, fortresses. 
and make about them walls and towers and gates and bars. We're going to fortify Jerusalem and these other cities so that they will be impregnable to an enemy attack. Because we've sought the Lord our God, we've sought Him, He's given us rest on every side, so they built and prospered. Verse 8 says He had an army of men that bare targets and spears out of Judah, which consisted of 300,000. And out of Benjamin, that drew bows and bare shields, 204 score thousand. So 580,000 strong was His army. So He drains the swamp, He rebuilds the military, and then it's a good thing they did because verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 14 says that an Ethiopian named Zerah, and he may have been one of the dynasties in Egypt, came with a host of a thousand thousand. Now how much is one thousand times one thousand? One million. So he has an army, he has an army of one million strong. Asa's army is only five hundred eighty thousand. That's a half a million against one million. They're, they are severely outnumbered. And this army comes against them to do battle against King Asa and the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. And I want you to notice how Asa responded to the battle. He cried unto the Lord his God, says chapter 14, verse 11, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help. You know how he responds? By seeking God. Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. You know, God can save by many or by few. Doesn't matter what the numbers are. Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. So help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. He's a God seeker. He depends on the Lord. And in thy name we go against this great multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians, says the next verse, before King Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. He's a God seeker. Time has escaped me to the point that I haven't been able to get to the rest of his story. But if you'll read on your own in chapter 15, you'll notice that the prophet Azariah came out to meet him. After the first 10 years of rest and at the end of that 10 years they had this enemy come against them and they're seeking God and God gives them the victory it's not long after that that the prophet comes out and says if you seek the Lord he will be found of you and if you forsake him he will forsake you that's such an important principle to remember and you read further in chapter 15 you'll see that they experienced tremendous revival verse 9 says he gathered all Judah and Benjamin to him, and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh. Do you know what was happening? People were coming out of the northern kingdom, Israel, down to Jerusalem to worship. That is, they were stealing members from the other churches. <laughs> Those people were saying, we're going to leave false doctrine, and we're going to come where the truth is, where the Lord is. For they saw that the Lord was with him. That's right. People are coming, they're infiltrating. They're coming in and it's a happy time and the people rejoice and they entered into a covenant, says verse 12 of chapter 15, to seek the Lord. That is, they said, let's bind ourselves together. Let's make a pact, you and I, all of us together, that we're going to be people who seek God in our lives with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Chapter 16, though, closes from his later years, an important lesson for us. Because after these people came out of the northern kingdom to ally themselves to King Asa and to be a part of the revival, you see how moral reform happened before religious revival. Moral reform happened before religious revival. 
We can't orchestrate a revival. God's got to send it down. But I'll tell you, we can, my friends, make moral reform. We can repent and make changes in our lives, in our nation, in our church, so that God is more pleased with us. And then perhaps he will be pleased to send down showers of blessing from on high. But after that, the king of Israel was jealous that he was losing people down to King Asa. So he built a fortification. He, this is a very provocative act. You'll read about this in the first part of chapter 16. And instead of seeking the Lord for guidance as to what he should do, Asa seeks help from the Syrians. And then you'll read in verse 12 of chapter 16, in the 39th year of his reign. Now here's a good way to study his life. The first 10 years were times of rest. Years 11 through 35 were times of revival and blessing. And then years 35 through 41, the last five or six years of his reign, in his old age, he goes astray. How many times have people lived a pretty good life serving God, but then in their later years, they get tired or they get too worldly or they lose focus and they stray away? You know, it's not enough just to run a good race. You've got to finish strong. Be faithful to the Lord all the way to the finish line. Be able to say with Paul, my friends, I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. I want to encourage you, my friends, if you're old and tired and weary and you don't know what the future holds, don't let up. Keep seeking and serving God. Don't be like King Asa, who in the 39th year of his reign was diseased in his feet. I don't know if he had gout or what. But it was, it was a bad disease. And in his disease, it says he sought not to the Lord. So in his later years, he sought the Syrians for help instead of the Lord. And now in his disease, he seeks to the physicians. He sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. But just because he's faltered does not mean that the overall thrust of his life was not godly and honorable. Okay? God's perspective on Asa's life was that he was a godly king, even though he had some moments of faltering and indiscretion at the end. The lesson we learn from this is the, that the best of men are but men at their very best. No leader is perfect. You say, I want somebody that's perfect to be our pastor. Good luck with that. You're going to be looking for a while. The search committee is going to have a hard time locating anybody that will meet that bill. But you certainly don't have one now, my friends. I have moments whenever I'm not at the top of my game, moments whenever you'll see my old nature come out. I'm sorry about it. And I'll tell you, that's true of a nation. No leader's perfect, right? But if they have a good heart, you can see a general disposition or inclination to a God-fearing path. No leader's perfect, and every man's life, yours included, is spotted with less than sterling moments and embarrassing episodes. In other words, a leader is not God. He's not a divine being. So he needs our prayers, right? Whoever it is. Therefore, put not your trust in princes, whether it's a King Asa or anybody else. Thank God for godly leaders who have a general godly orientation, even though they themselves are not completely perfect sterling characters. But yet, my friends, our trust must be not in princes, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man in whom there's no help, but put your trust in the Lord your God. This is what is needed today. The lesson we learned from King Asa, this is what is needed today. If my people, says Second Chronicles 7.14, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and what? 
seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, says God, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. May God bless us to do those four things and trust him to do the three things he says and to heal our church, to heal our families, to heal our hearts, to heal our land, this great nation of America. May it be truly great again because the people turn back to God with a true heart to seek Him and His face. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.